We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Reuters has a piece by Luke Cohen entitled, Analysis Beyond Yachts and Planes, U.S. Turns to Foreign Agent Laws to Curb Russian Influence. In the five months since the U.S. Department of Justice launched a task force to seize Russian oligarchs' assets to pressure Moscow over its invasion of Ukraine, prosecutors also have targeted some less tangible Russia's influence. What is the government really targeting? Influence or a different narrative based in fact? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He hosts the podcast, The Left is Dead. James Carey, as always, sir, welcome back. Always good to be here. How dangerous is this? The Department of Justice, they've broadly ramped up enforcement of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, or FARA, and a related law known by its code number 951. And FARA and 951, they allow prosecutors to go after very broad activities such as lobbying or running media campaigns. Then they can go into espionage status, which focuses on agents seeking classified or military information. Your thoughts, James Carey? Well, it seems that they're kind of blending the two together at this point. I mean, they're um, equating influence with espionage almost the way the media speaks about it. But um, I think this is just, again, like you said in the intro here, this is an attempt to block out another narrative because most of these were not any type of espionage. They were, at best, you could call them influence campaigns. Um, these left parties who've gotten raided in the U.S., the people who got, you know, um, this woman who was arrested for, or who has a warrant issued for her for wanting to start on I Love Russia um, group for youth, you know, these aren't really espionage. And I think that even with the Russian narrative coming through so weakly here, they, they really panic over it. And I think you're just seeing them kind of blend those two things together to, again, you know, the way you see on like social media where you're a Russian bot. If you disagree, you know, people think those still exist. Um, I think you're going to see that people will think you're just working for Russia now, if you have an alternate opinion. And I don't think that that's you know, I think they're just trying to equate that with spying, and which is ridiculous because it's it's influence maybe, but I don't think Russian influence is that heavy. But I think they're definitely trying to just pin up anyone who has an alternate narrative, and obviously Russian media and all Russian, you know, Russian outlets have always highlighted those voices. Well, you know, the other thing too, I think James is, you know, alignment versus influence, and that's this. You know, I interviewed the people from the Uhuru movement, and I found they've been doing the same thing for fifty years. Right. But what they did now was they took a position, and the position was, we believe that Ukraine is fighting against the neo-colonial powers. We are for, you know, Africa has had a lot of trouble with colonialism. Therefore, they took the position that they supported Russia in the war. The United States is not involved and has not declared war. So any entity in the United States can take any position they want on the war. But it appeared here, they were saying, like, the U.S. said a couple of years ago, they ran a couple of candidates for St. Petersburg mayor, which they have a right to and got like one and a half percent of the vote, that that was the influence, that the Russians really are concerned about getting one and a half percent 
of the mayoral race in St. Petersburg. So it comes across as preposterous, but I think it's nefarious in that it gives them an opportunity to go after any organizations, in this instance, a socialist organization or an anti-imperialist organization that's pushing against the U.S. State Department and national security states narratives. Your thoughts, James? Yeah, I think so, because we see how locked up the narrative is here. You know, if the media, well, the media doesn't bring it up here too much anymore, but if the media brings up Ukraine, it's always in a hopeful light, you know, and I think that, again, yeah, nobody wants these javelins dumped into this country, you know, nobody wants all these weapons dumped into Ukraine, they're going to go missing, we know they're going to end up all over, and I think it's right for people to question that, because we've seen it happen before, and I think that, that, yeah, the U.S. wants to stop this, because, one, this is big business for them, you know, these javelins are worth money, Um, and two, they can't have this competing narrative, and this is a good way to also just wipe out anyone who is opposed to imperialism. And obviously, empire over the last two decades has looked really bad in the U.S. You know, it has not been a series of wins like we thought it would be. So I think that as that crumbles apart, you're going to see further enforcement. And now with Russia in, you know, the ground war in Europe, there's obviously more of a an interest by U.S. you know citizens to actually watch this and. Um, Whereas, say, Syria, there was not. But now with you, you know, with the U.S., so many U.S. eyes on it for that moment, they had to kind of take out any opposition to this thing. So as they did that, I think they're just going to move from, like, more groups that are opposed to imperialism in general and just anyone who opposes U.S. foreign policy. But to equate that with, yeah, there's some type of influence going on, I don't think so, because Uhuru is, like, one of the most fringe left groups you can find. You know, and to think that this is what, the Russians are dumping money into to, what, try and create a separatist movement in the U.S.? That's ridiculous. So, yeah, they're just going after people who are opposed to the war and who have any other, like I said, the counter-narrative. Any counter-narrative is dangerous, especially as ours falls apart. And there also seems to be a very selective nature to the ideologies or interests that are being pursued because APAC, they can pump unfettered millions into state and congressional races in Ohio against Nina Turner, in Georgia years ago against Cynthia McKinney, in Michigan against Rashida Tlaib, in Maryland against Donna Edwards. And the interesting thing about everybody that I mentioned is they're all anti-Zionist. So it's okay for Israel to pump money into American elections to challenge these individuals, but somehow there's a problem when the Yuhuru movement that's been in the game for 50 years wants to come out and say there's a problem with the proxy war in Ukraine. Yeah, it's an absolute double standard because, I mean, look, U.S. leaders go to APEC every year and swear allegiance to Israel and the Zionist project. Um, they outspent they spent a bunch of money on Haley Stevens in my district, one of the most forgettable Democrats I've ever seen. You know, um, but again, we saw what happens when you insult Apex money, right? We saw Ilhan, who's become really kind of quieted down now because when she said it, everyone in her party and everyone in the opposing party accused her of anti-Semitism for pointing out that, hey, this lobby spends money. And what is more dangerous than, you know, these APAC dumping millions of dollars into the U.S. or a member of Uhuru going to, like, Russia for an anti-imperialism conference, you know, an anti-globalization conference. And the, you, you, to think Russia has an influence anywhere near Israel, obviously, is ridiculous. But Israel is just allowed to carry that out in the open. And I think that's how, you know, most things work here. We see the rules are written for whoever's in charge, and they don't go the other way. But, yeah, this is a double standard. And I think that, 
we'll do anything for our allies. Look, Joe Biden went to beg Saudi Arabia to lower gas prices. We'll clearly do anything for our, our friends. But if you're an enemy and you have an opposing viewpoint, uh, even if Israel has an opposing viewpoint, we support it. But if you're an enemy who has an opposing viewpoint, um, it can't be voiced here. You know, if you're an ally, you can do whatever. You can cut up a journalist and a consulate, whatever. Uh, but that's fine. You're an ally. You have supplies with something crucial or you act in some crucial role for the U.S. empire. But if you don't and you're opposed to that and you're opposed to even just not, you know, not becoming another pole of power, but a multipolar world, anything, any idea like that where the U.S. just isn't the world place is, you know, dangerous. And obviously Israel always wants that. And I think Israel can't stand. Um, Israel's worried about they're going to be criticized for human rights because the more things like Black Lives Matter and stuff like that catches on here, the more people are going to be looking at Palestine and being, asking what's going on. And I think that Israel has to spend a lot of money to try and keep down even mild criticism at this point. Another story, a U.S. to enrage Kim Jong-un with assassination dry run. Here's the interesting thing about that. So they're going to go back to these military operations, part of which they feign attacking North Korea on North Korea's border. And they practice basically murdering Kim Jong-un and all of the basically it's a practice run to how do you start a nuclear war? And here's what's so bad. Trump went to North Korea and tried to get a deal and froze those military maneuvers when he did that. And here Biden's in, and it's uh, another provocative maneuver after the Taiwan Pelosi debacle. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think that this is just, you know, that, again, we're trying to exert muscle we don't have. And I think that this is another sort of attempt to do that. Um, Clearly, I don't know why it's you know, the Biden administration is in opposition to talking to North Korea, I'd imagine, just because Trump did. And the de- Democratic narrative at the time was that he was giving them everything, you know, which is ridiculous because we're, no, it, we're in the same position we started in 2016. So that's obviously ridiculous. But I think there is this sort of challenge because the only thing that Biden seems to be able to do with the empire is kind of virtue signal, essentially, right? And it's what happened to Ukraine when it's just constant talks about, well, hey, you know, we don't back, we, we don't want this country invaded, but we don't have anything we can do about it. And I think North Korea is the same thing, where there's nothing they can do about it, but the empire has a signal that it still has a pulse, which is getting harder to do, but this is what it has to do. It's going to carry on its traditional roles as we kind of fall behind, and obviously China's a big threat. So I think we want to project our presence more in Asia anyway. You know, they've said as much. And I think you're seeing this, and it's kind of a revert to the old um, sort of Cold War mentality, and I think North Korea is just going to go back to the role they filled in both the Cold War and after. So the United States backs the proxy war in Ukraine. Nancy Pelosi goes into Taiwan and she's trying to pick a fight with a nuclear power called China. And now we're talking about war games where we want to simulate or practice the decapitation of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. A lot of grand gestures, right? (laughs) Wow. The president of South Korea won't meet with Nancy Pelosi because he says, I don't want none of that smoke. With the war games that China is now engaged in around Taiwan, South Korea says, you know what, Nancy, I'm on vacation and I'm not coming for I'm not coming to see you. The United States is it seems as though it's trying its damnedest to pick a fight, a war somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah, I mean, I think it could be either a fight or they're trying to sort of alienate their allies from doing any business with China. But I think that China has their lock on the Pacific Rim so tight that, I mean, even Australia has to got 
get used to doing business with China despite their opposition to it. You know, um, I think the thing is that we want to at least because, you know, the TVP never went through and we're kind of seeing China lock us out with their own trade deals in Asia. Uh, I think we, we want to see people isolated from them. We want to see South Korea isolated from them. We want to make sure Japan stays isolated from them. We want to make sure that, you know, all the other Vietnam, Philippines, all these countries that are around China where we're worried about influence, I think we see American leaders sort of, you know, propping them up where, you know, Taiwan is the perfect example. This is a way to just sort of isolate these leaders from doing business with China. And I think even if we don't necessarily push, if they're not necessarily pushing for a war, they're definitely pushing towards increased tensions because, you know, I think that the U.S. model is if there's not going to be a war, we're going to make sure your economy is in the gutter. You know, we're going to destroy something anyway, so you might as well go to war. But, yeah, I think second choice is let's just try and lock you out from China, which is a foolish move because it's impossible to do at this point. China has so much dominance in the East Asian market that there's no way the U.S. can isolate anyone from needing to do business with them. Yeah. Last thing real quick. Senate votes 95 to 1 to expand NATO into Sweden and Finland. Got about a minute and a half. Well, I mean, this is uh, Biden's bipartisan consensus, right? You got the bipartisan bill through and it's defense spending. But um, I think that you're going to see more of this. Obviously, there's, again, this is Cold War posturing, but we can't directly point at China, even though Pelosi's trying to. Um, we need them. So Russia has become a great enemy to kind of go against. It's been great to expand NATO. It's going to be great for the military industrial complex. But I don't know. I don't think, uh, I think they're going to have a hard time. I think Turkey's going to mess with it for a long time and maybe give it up on. But um, I think that they're going to have a hard time actually getting those, you know, these two more powers into NATO. I don't think that's going to happen here. Um, I see it's just, again, this is an expansion. This is all a big giveaway. So Ukraine's been a big giveaway for everyone who makes missiles and artillery and everything like that. So I think we're just going to see more of a giveaway if they expand NATO and it'll be selling things to Finland, you know? It's a money laundering operation. Absolutely. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 